Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. So Don, we've been doing a series with uh, startup organization or startup support organizations, and uh, we've got one more uh, coming up with Genesis in Newfoundland and Labrador. But we wanted to talk to Peter Marrera. Peter uh, owns a company called Entrevestor, which is tracking 771 tech firms across Atlantic Canada. So he's, he's the most comprehensive provider of information on tech and related startup companies across the region. And he's been doing that now for over a decade. And I think it's a very valuable service for the region. Couldn't agree more. Uh, data's, I'm a big data guy like you are. It's good to know kind of how we're tracking in terms of the startup, and especially in the tech sector. Um, I think he's probably going to expand his interests based on your conversation with him uh, to at least the ocean industries, I believe. But, uh, you know, data is knowledge. Knowledge is power. And uh, I think that he provides a really uh, important and useful service uh, to Atlantic Canada by tracking what's going on. And he has a lot of interesting data that I think you, you talked to him specifically about um, the amount of investment that is being made in the region. And uh, I think that that's, that's, you know, a good number. Yeah, that's correct. So one of the things that's very interesting is that the companies actually provide him with this information. So there has to be a level of trust between him as a, as a, as a provider of information and the, all these companies. So it's the data gathering is complex in and of itself. He's actually got employees that, that gather the data uh, and then the publishing of the data. But yeah, he said last year in 2021, and this is a bit of a scoop for the Insights podcast because they're only releasing the report on June 14th. Uh, but he says that the 771 firms that they track in the database raised over $600 million last year, and that's a record. So that's $600 million of investment into the tech industries, ocean tech, you know, cybersecurity, uh, fintech across Atlantic Canada. So it's a really, really big number. He was concerned, however, at the higher rate of failure among recent startups. So he said that the 2019 cohort, so that's the, the firms in his database that started in 2019, of that group, 50% are no longer in business three years later, or even two years later, right, in 2021. Uh, so he's quite concerned uh, about that. He attributes it to a higher uh, cost to get to a minimum viable product and mainly the higher cost of labor. Uh, he suggested that in Halifax now, uh, right out of school, uh, computer programmers are able to earn about $80,000. Uh, and that's uh, good for them, but also it is putting upward pressure on costs for these uh, startup firms. Well, I'm not too surprised by the failure rate, are you? I mean, if you look at startups in general, whether they're in tech or otherwise, the success rate of starting a business is really, you know, in that range of about 50% after the first or second year. So um, that's not a surprise. Uh, what is the good news is that there's 770 companies <laughs> in this portfolio right now, which is a number that is quite a bit larger than it was a decade ago when he wrote uh, his book, Backwater, which uh, really painted a pretty grim uh, view of the economic prospects for Atlantic Canada. Uh, when I read the book, I thought he must have been listening to some of my presentations because there's a lot of common thought in that book that I obviously agreed to with at that time. 
And uh, the thing that I find remarkable, and I know you probably talked to him about this, but is that here we are a little bit more than a decade later, and a lot of positive things have happened economically in this region. And I'm sure that he is now more optimistic about our economic uh, future. And in fact, I I just uh, did a column on... um, on, on what population growth uh, is doing for our region in the, in the regional papers uh, um, this past week. And one of the things that I think is happening, David, and you might not agree, but I think we're, we're on the turning point of becoming not a have-not region. I think that we have the opportunity, finally, to get rid of that have-not label. It's not going to happen quickly, but we're on the right trajectory and, um, you know, I think the work that Peter's doing it kind of verifies that in some some respects. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So um, anyway, we did talk about backwater and he is a lot more optimistic today. Uh, immigration, the, the state of the startups and entrepreneurship in the region, he's quite bullish. Still a little bit concerned about the federal government's fiscal position and worried that that could be a drag not only on the rest of the country, but on this region as well in terms of our economic potential in the years ahead. Uh, But other than that, uh, he said if he had to write, if he was writing Backwater 2.0, it would be uh, a much more positive story now than it was back in 2009. Yes, and like I think we all should be concerned about government debt. In fact, the spending during the pandemic is uh, is probably a bit of a contributor to our inflation uh, problem right now. Same thing happened almost everywhere in the world where the government spent a boatload of money to prop up the economy, which uh, has uh, we've learned that it hasn't helped us in the long term. Um, the cost of everything is increasing and. Uh, it, it will take a while for inflation to kind of be uh, battled back down to uh, the targeted rate of 2 or 3% a year that the Bank of Canada would prefer. Yep. So we'll see how that plays out. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Peter Moreira, the owner and CEO of Entrevestor. Peter, welcome to the Insights Podcast. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. So we always want to give our listeners a little bit of uh, background on the people we're interviewing. So can you tell us a little bit about your career, how you got started, and then ultimately how you ended up establishing Entrevestor? Yeah, I've been a journalist since newsrooms were full of typewriters, cigarette smoke, and reporters, all of which sadly have, have gone in the last few years. Yeah, I started at the Chronicle Herald a long, long, long time ago, and um, in my career, I've worked at the CP Ottawa uh, Parliamentary Bureau, Uh, then with the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, uh, an American news service called Knight Ritter Financial News. I worked with them first in Seoul and then in Hong Kong. Then I was Bloomberg's banking reporter in London then European bureau chief for an American publication called The Deal. Then I was back on this side of the Atlantic covering finance for The Deal. Uh, Then 2008 happened, and a few years later I got laid off and decided that I could make a go of it with with three or four different activities, including a... um, a news site for the new startups that were sprouting up in Atlantic Canada. And everything fell through except that silly news site. And it became, uh, you know, basically 
a means to existence for my wife and I. So Entrevester now has been going for 11 years. We report daily on Atlantic Canadian startups and we cover, um, we provide data on the startup uh, ecosystem and community. And our latest report will be coming out June 14th in a, um, in a, uh, uh, an event at Volta. So I think I've told you in the past, Peter, that I really appreciate your business model. I, I don't know. Thank you. I how appreciate you've been that. able. Well, but I mean, you, you know, we don't have the, the level of depth of insight and analysis and ongoing understanding of the tech startup scene here is very, very impressive. Probably one of the best uh, models. I don't know, maybe in North America for for compiling that information and you're able to make a buck at it which is the other thing that's yeah really cool. the, the I mean, key to it is the ecosystem supports it um we have about 15 partners we call them um don't tell anyone but it's because the federal government doesn't like the word sponsor um you know the the, the ecosystem the members of the ecosystem have swung in to support this and that's why we can do it every year we couldn't do it without that because it's it's hundreds, literally, hours of work each year. So, what's the business model? Quickly, is it you you, you sell the content, and but you also have some government uh, uh, partners. So, what what's a little, can you tell us a little bit about your business model? Yeah, so we are a news site. So, like all news sites, we have ad you know advertising, and we do sponsored content that would not support us. So each year we produce our Atlantic Canada startup data report. And we put that out by conducting hundreds of interviews, both with support organizations and with entrepreneurs. And we survey, we, well, before we survey uh, everyone, we go through our data bank each year, adding in new companies and subtracting companies that have fallen by the wayside. And that means that this year we ended up with 771 companies in our data bank across the four provinces. Um, so we used to sell this report to people, but um, there was it, we it was decided it's it's good for everyone to see this. So we post it on our site. We are paid to open it up to everyone. Uh, we also have um, other organizations, both private and public sector, coming in to sponsor it. And what that means is that we're able to basically provide the news that everybody depends on and provide the data, which demonstrates the, the, the strengths and the weaknesses of the startup community. So how, Peter, how can you be so comprehensive? Like, I don't think you've missed a single announcement, a single, I mean, it, it's pretty impressive. Do you have like a technology that, that scans everything? Like, how do you, I mean, I, I don't, like I said, I don't think no. you've ever missed well, a single we're not story. always on time and we're not always first. One thing that's happened in 11 years is the other media has become better. Okay. Uh, uh, better. I, the other media is paying more attention to startups than they did in, in 2011. Um, no, we are, we're, we're now, I think, beaten more often than, than we beat other people. We still get, we still get big stories. You know, we were the ones who broke that, uh, Anova Corp had, uh, 101 
turned a profit of $101 million on its, um, on its investment in Meta Materials. Um, but yeah, we just hear things. We have people who tell us things. We go to all the events that we can. Uh, we're talking to people all the time. It's just shoe leather journalism. Uh, I appreciate I appreciate what you said. The other, as I said, the other organizations are really paying attention to this to this uh, to, to to this space now. Well, I think that's probably in large part because of the work that you've done to getting getting it getting higher profile for for the tech sector and tech startups in general. Before we talk about a, spew, a few specific sectors, I wanted to ask you to give us just a summary of overall investment these days in in tech uh, and in the tech tech startups in the tech sector. Uh, you know, we had the pandemic. Are you seeing? A rebound? Is there more venture capital, more capital, more startups? Uh, do you have a little bit of a scoop? I know you said you're going to launch something on June 14th, but can you give our, our okay. listeners just a little bit of a, so, just tease us a little bit? You said tech. We basically cover five sectors. There's four main sectors, IT, life sciences, clean tech, and advanced manufacturing. And there's gray areas, there's overlaps. You could put, there are different companies you could put in two or three of those. And then you have oceans. And oceans is a sector unto itself, but every oceans company also belongs in one of those four categories. You know, for instance, Real Data is it's an AI company, so we put that in IT, but it's also an oceans company. So it's not just tech. In terms of investment, 2021 was probably the best year ever, a total of including money raised through the stock exchange, I believe it was $634 million. It's 600 and something, certainly. Now, 200 of that was the money raised by Metamaterials when it uh, moved to the NASDAQ last, ju last June. But even if we strip out that, it was a really great year, uh, especially in New Brunswick. New Brunswick raised almost a quarter of a million, uh, sorry, a quarter of a billion dollars, uh, led by companies like Sonray and IntroHive. Uh, angel uh, investment, which is always a concern in Atlantic Canada because we don't have a dedicated angel network, was pretty good. It was about $26 million in the middle of the, the $22 million to $29 million band that we see each year. So, Investment overall was really strong. We're seeing a problem now that we've never seen before. And this is really the theme of our report. Uh, I, I touched on it last week uh, at the launch of the Halifax Index. The companies that are established, the companies that have traction, they're doing really well. They're raising money. They're doubling their profits. They're hiring staff when they can find them. But the companies that are, say, three years old or, or younger, are really having trouble. It used to be we never saw more than 66 failures a year. In the last two years, we've seen 100 failures or more. The failures are getting younger and younger. I think 57%, 56% of them were uh, two, one or two years old uh, in the past year. We took a deep look at the companies launched in 2019, and over half of them have fallen by the wayside. Now, you know, usually you'd have an attrition rate 
of 10 to 20% per year, I guess, but it's, it's more than that in the last two years. And the companies launched in 2019 only raised $11 million in equity funding. So if you strip out the uh, publicly listed companies, $11 million is about 3% of the total raised. It's just not good news. So we're getting this big divergence in the startup ecosystem. You have these companies, you know, your carbon cures, your intro hives, just doing fantastic things. And then you've got the new companies which just can't get started. And the main culprit is rising tech costs. It used to be that you could launch a, a minimum viable product for, I don't know, um, let's say $50,000. You have a business CEO, a tech CEO, they come together, they hire somebody, they get a, an IRAP grant and a, a bit of money somewhere else, and they can put out an MVP. Nowadays, a um, what I'm told is that a like a a programmer right out of university costs eighty thousand a year. It's getting a lot more expensive to get to that MVP, and some companies, even though their prospects may be good, are having a lot of trouble just getting to to first base. So, okay, so I just want to unpack that a bit, Peter, if if, you, if that's okay with you. So, no problem. There is a, there's a nor there's a na- natural kind of sorting process in this sector, right? Some people have ideas. Yep. They get an initial pool of angel funding, you know, they go a couple of years and then they go under. It's just, it's not, they can't get to the MVP or the, or the minimum viable product. They can't, you know, it's just not a great idea. It's, we thought it was a good idea. It didn't work out. You're saying now, however, that now it's, it's more an issue of they might still have good ideas, but it's just taking too long or it's too costly to get it to the point where it's it's what you're calling a minimum viable product, or where it's where it's at a stage where you can actually take it to market, and and that's, that's so is that a fair sort? And uh, you know we've seen some some promising companies fall by the wayside in the last couple of years or the last year or two. Now that's always going to happen. Um, you know you think of companies like um, oh Unique Solutions, which raised more than sixty million dollars. Um, you think of companies like IOU TV, I think it was, AI, AIU TV, based in Halifax and Denver. They raised a bunch of money. You're always going to have companies that have difficulty, but it's just we're seeing now seeing and hearing, you know, a lot of the evidence, not a lot, but some of the evidence for this is anecdotal. Just people can't find the stuff that they need to generate these products. Um, uh, or they cannot pay the people that they could find. And it's, um, it's a problem for the whole industry, but the companies that have raised X million dollars have the resources to, to see it through a bit better. Right. So the larger firms have the, the capacity and the track record. And so the, it's the small ones, the, the early stage ones that are, are, are more uh, finding it more challenging. Hmm. Yeah. And the ecosystem is aware of the the, uh, problem and trying to address it. Kathy Simpson is doing great work um, trying to develop uh, an Atlantic Canadian IT brand and, um, you know, promote the, the, the message that 
you can prosper financially and have a great lifestyle by working for uh, startup companies in Atlantic Canada. So I look forward to reading or reading your report or, or uh, after the June 14 uh, announcement, that's, uh, it'll be very interesting to hear what you have to say on that. I did want to ask you a little bit about some of these individual sectors. You talked about five, maybe we won't, we won't talk about all five, but I did. How about okay. ocean technology? Um, ocean, you know, there's a, there's, yeah. a, there's ocean a super cluster, really there's cove. So go ahead. Yeah, it's really interesting. And actually later this year, we're going to launch a new product called, uh, Blue Tech, Blue Tech Today. It's not going to be limited to Atlantic Canada. It's going to be first pan-Canadian and then we hope global. Because something that you always hear in the ocean tech sector is ocean tech right now is where clean tech was 10 years ago. Um, there's all kinds of opportunity here. And Atlantic Canada is recognized globally as one of the hubs in the global ocean tech area. You know, I've spoken to people who run accelerators in Israel, in California, and um, they all know the individuals in the ocean tech space in Atlantic Canada. You look at CDL Oceans, they've now had two, co two cohorts uh, and roughly 20% of the people who've come out of their program, I think, are uh, Atlantic Canadian companies. Uh, they have, you know, groups or companies from Norway, from Israel, from the United States, of course, uh, from Ireland. And several of them have set up operations uh, in Atlantic Canada. Uh, they, they like the ecosystem they found here. So that's impressive. So you see real growth potential then uh, from uh, leveraging our oceans and the, the intersection of technology and oceans? I do. I think I think the ocean supercluster has been a success. I don't know what comes next. We're hearing that the federal government is planning something different than, you know, round two of the superclusters. So I don't know what comes next with the ocean supercluster, which has, which has been a force. Um, but yeah, I think that with, you know, groups like Cove, like, um, you know, the, the work being done in, in St. John's with groups like the Marine Institute, et cetera. Um, I, I think that there's a, a staying, a staying, uh, a sustainability in what we've got in Atlantic Canada now, especially in Newfoundland and in um, and in Nova Scotia. One of my graphics in the report and points out, and I've pointed this out before, that New Brunswick is really missing an opportunity because there is an there is economic growth in this sector, and uh, Nova Scotia's got the lion's share of it, followed by by Newfoundland and Labrador. And New Brunswick, not so much. Yeah, it's a little surprising. I've always wondered why we have, you know, many, many hundreds of miles of coastline. We have aquaculture. Yep. We have, you know, large yeah, fishery sectors. Great Institute in, um, in St. Andrews. Right, I always thought St. John has been lagging in the startup space for the last five to seven years. 
St. John, I thought, could be New Brunswick's hub for, for ocean technology. Okay, so we'll have to Sounds put like that a question in column to me. <laughs> I think you're right. That's a good question. Let's turn to fintech. So obviously, globally, it's one of the largest uh, uh, sectors for investment. We had St. John's-based Verifin, which was sold for, I don't know, I think I read somewhere around $3 billion Canadian. Uh, Van and Monk. U.S. 2.75. 2.75 U.S., amazing. Venn in yep. Moncton has set up this Atlantic FinTech website sort of group, uh, and Alicia Rochman is uh, uh, working on that. Do you – but I, I still struggle with what's our – like why would FinTech – thrive in a place like Atlantic Canada? What are, what, are your, what are your thoughts around fintech? Well, I think there are a lot. No, not a lot. There are some companies in the fintech space, in the fintech grouping, who are not strictly fintech. Um, you know, they could, it's technology that could apply to financial services. So when there's the trade mission to, is it FinTech 2020 or I forget the name of the conference. It's a sales opportunity. They go along with it. So yeah, Verifin, definitely a FinTech company. Some others, it's, it's a bit vague. Um, I cannot think of an intrinsic element of the ecosystem in Atlantic Canada that would produce a FinTech cluster except there's a startup hub with, you know, well, I, I said 771 startups in it, in the region, roughly 45% of those are IT. So you're going to have some of those that are in the FinTech space. Um, why did it happen? I don't know. It's sort of like, you know, there's a bunch of popcorns, popping which one's going to be first. I mean, you're going to have that variation. Um, having said that, there are some really interesting companies in that space, and you can go to Verifin, which is the granddaddy of the, 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 the startup world here, or you can choose a company like Passive in Fredericton, which sort of went unnoticed for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden... Last year, I think it was, they said they had a billion dollars under management. Now they're in uh, Y Combinator, and they've done a really impressive funding round. The two Brendans have done fantastic on that company. Yeah, just I'm just I'm trying to link that. Like the ocean tech, you can kind of see it's based yeah. on a core strength, and and some of the others. But fintech seems a little weird. But even Four Eyes Financial, um, there Four there Eyes are a number of. Well. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking of some others. I suppose that all the cybersecurity companies could be, you know, sort of slotted into that fintech space. Um, yeah, there was just a company that received financing in Charlottetown that I had never heard of. Um, all of a sudden, they've got $3 million of funding led by Build. And what they do is they do back-end uh, systems for, for financial companies saying that most fintech is front end, is use, user, uh, user experience uh, apps. Um, yeah, just for some reason, it's taking off here. Hmm. 
So that's interesting. So I, let's talk a little bit about cybersecurity. So that one seems to me a little more of a classic case of of government saying we have kind of the core elements uh, and let's let's invest public dollars. They invested in the Canadian Institute for Cybersecurity at UNB. That there was something called the Cyber NB Initiative that ran for three or four or maybe five years until it just shut down uh, a few months ago. But what are, what are your thoughts around cybersecurity? Do you think there's, has that really met its potential? Do you think there's potential for growth? Oh, there's huge poten- potential for growth. Um, and, you know, sadly, world events just this year make it more, uh, make it more likely. Um, I think Ali Gorbani and, you know, <laughs> He's a bit like Durendra Shukla. They're both UNBP guys and, you know, just impossible not to like them. So when I compliment Ali, it's because he's such a, such a wonderful guy. But Ali has done a great job with that institute, growing it from, I think it was 17 people when he started. And I think he's got over 90 now, something like that. When you say classic case of supported by governments, what I've always loved about that initiative is I've always thought that IT suited itself well to Atlantic Canada. You know, it didn't need huge huge cost expenditure. There was no uh, equipment that you really needed. You can get to market first. It's global. It's export focused. We should be focusing on IT. But you know, in PEI, the focus is on life sciences. In Nova Scotia, it's on life sci- In terms of government policy, in Nova Scotia, it's life sciences and, and oceans. Newfoundland is a bit more, more diversified. The only government in the area that really has a focus on an I, a sec- segment of IT is New Brunswick and its cybersecurity uh, initiative. Um, more power to them. Now, what has the result been? The result has been Sonray. Uh, the result has been Boceron, Trojai, these really interesting companies that are doing fantastic things. You've got the, the whole Q1 lab story backstopping the, the, the initiative. I, I think it's great, and I think it's really David, I believe it's in its infancy. Assuming they can find the human capital they need, if they can find the human capital they need, they will get the the financial capital they need. It does seem to be coming back to human capital quite a bit, uh, our conversation, and I think that's a real issue. I'd love to see more, uh, maybe more federal government cyber activity uh, done uh, in the Fredericton area, it'd be nice for the government to make a commitment that way, because uh, as yeah. you know, the federal government is a huge investor in its own cybersecurity needs. But, well, uh, we the other thing to, you know, I used to, I spent a bit of time in Kitchener, Waterloo and became aware of this there. If, um, if quantum computing becomes a thing, and I think the jury's still out on it. If quantum computing becomes a thing, then everything changes in the cybersecurity space. Everything. And um, and I think it'd have to change really, really quickly. 
And uh, then there would be a lot of interest, infrastructure involved because of the cooling systems that you need with most, with most forms of quantum computing. Anyway, that's another discussion, and you, you wouldn't have to dig particularly deep to find out how little I know about quantum computing. Right, but do you think that's a risk to our existing firms, or would they have to lean into that technology? Now, the operative word in all that is think, because I don't know for sure. If I look at someone like Boceron, you know, they're into the, 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 the social element of cybersecurity. It wouldn't affect them so much. Um, but yeah, what, you know, if bad actors have computing power that can do in a second what normal computer does in days or weeks, uh, all of a sudden everything changes. And um, yeah, it's pretty frightening to think about so let's turn our uh, and talk a little bit about the clean tech sector. So we interviewed the premier of PEI recently, and he told us he wants the island to build a clean tech cluster similar to what we see with biotech or biosciences uh, on the island. Uh, of course, that has become a major success story under Rory Francis and the Bio, uh, Bio yeah. Alliance. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that? Do you think there's a base of, of, of clean tech or, I mean, that seems like a pretty big ambition to, to build a, it is a, a big clean ambition. Tech um, you know, I think the most successful clean tech company that we cover on PEI would be Sentry, which does um, digital monitoring with sensors of uh, water quality within utilities. They've got huge client base in UK and Cal and, uh, and um and california um i'm trying to think of a second one and you know i know that i'm going to kick myself and somebody's going to say what about us um the whole thing about the bio alliance is they had a foundation to work with because agriculture was such a strong part of the pei economy you know, before this startup thing got got off the ground. And the Bio Alliance has been going for 20 years, I think, 15, 20 years. I think they're just, I think they just released their fourth five-year plan. Um, and they'd have to find another Rory Francis. And, you know, they don't come and pop in uh, Cracker Jack boxes. Uh, Rory, Rory is a real force of nature. Then, you know, I mean, to say clean tech, most startups will call themselves clean techs just like they'll call themselves social ventures. They will say, oh, but we help the environment by doing this. Um, you know, we. I don't want to give an example and to some extent, it's true, but I mean, Carbon Cure in Halifax, that is a clean tech company. You, you can search the world and you won't find many better. Um, but there are a lot of companies that will say, oh, yes, but if you use our digital product, you'll use less energy. So we are, in essence, a clean tech company. So again, it's a a bit like fintech as well. If there's advantages to us saying that we're a clean tech company, then sure, we're a clean tech company. 
Um, yeah, I guess it could happen. Um, I think they've got a long way to go. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there, there is a problem with definition. I think there's a lot of yeah, bio another, that would say they're clean. There's a lot of energy that would say they're clean. There's a lot. So there is, I think there is a problem around definition for sure. Clean tech can be, not always, but can be capital intensive. Like a, a bona fide clean tech company would be planetary. Well, they've just changed the name. There were planetary hydrogen and now they're planetary, uh, planetary uh, technologies. They have done very well. They were one of, I think, six companies to get milestone, million dollar milestone funding in the most recent carbon X prize competition. But if you talk to them and the amount of capital that they will need to, to fulfill their vision, you're talking about 10 figures of financing US. So yeah, um, PEI, small place uh, to really, really make a dent in clean tech. There's a lot of capital involved. So you talked a little bit about Carbon Cure. Are there other clusters around the region, Halifax? Are there any any major players in New Brunswick that are involved in clean tech? One of the reasons I'm asking you is because the feds just in the last few weeks have announced a big new pot of money for clean tech. So there seems to be a lot of government yeah. money flowing into the sector. There is. There are some really interesting companies, one of which I am invested in because my daughter runs it. Uh, that is Aurea Technologies, which I think is a fantastic company. I'm really thrilled to be uh, to be involved, even marginally. Um, there are some, you know, planetary. You know, if I did, if I were doing a podcast, the, I think the first guy I'd invite on would be Mike Kelland. He's a real deep thinker, and he articulates everything so well. Um, and he's a good guy just to get in an argument with. You know, he and I had an argument about the the long term outlook for um, carbon the carbon offset markets, and he knows more about it than I did. Um, planetary is is definitely definitely one to watch. Um, Century, which I mentioned, Patrick is doing a fantastic job with them. They they did a raise last year. Um, Oh, I'm just trying to think of who else. Um, you know, I'm going to wake up yelling yelling names in the middle of the night tonight. Peter, I don't expect you to have a, a, a recollection of all 771 companies. I apologize for putting you on the spot there. but no, no. Um, It's one thing about this sector is I used to be able to get my arms around it and met, you know, 90% of the founders, 80% of the founders. It's not the case anymore. Yeah, 771. That's a lot. So I wanted to ask you about artificial intelligence. I, I don't know anything about artificial intelligence. Um, I keep seeing Because your intelligence up. is so genuine, David. <laughs> there you go. But ACOA has put some money, MBIF. They've got a new program to try and encourage firms to use AI. Um, and I think Nova Scotia has something similar. Maybe it's across Atlantic Canada. I'm not sure. But what are your... 
Are you seeing anything there? Are there existing startups trying to leverage AI or new startups that are based on AI? Um, again, I still, this is another one where I'm not sure we have the core, like maybe research capacity or what, what, what do we have, um, you know, sort of anchoring uh, that sort of AI focus in our region? Well, you know, what is AI? And I, I'm not being flippant when I say that. I think that so many, I think digital technology is a lot more sophisticated and we all expect so much more of it than we did 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, a startup could be an app. Um, you know, it does your laundry or whatever. You download it on your phone. Um, everybody's happy. Now, if you're launching a digital company, I think you have to be talking about machine learning, IoT, or artificial intelligence just in what you're doing. Um, so it's not going to be two guys in a garage anymore. It's going to be a team of... Uh, of uh, software engineers with the experience to to do something far more sophisticated than what we would have said before. So do we have the wherewithal to do that? Yes. I mean, you look at a company like TrueJI in St. John. Stephen and James have done a fantastic job with that company. They've raised money. They were just named one of the was it CB Insights? I think CB Insights just named them one of the top 100. AI companies in the world. Wow. And, you know, I was talking to Stephen, is that a story? Is, and he said, you're damn right it's a story. And he gave me the, the performance of the companies that had been in the ranking last year. And, yeah, it is a big deal. And it leads to investment. It leads to clients, et cetera. Uh, so let's go back to your question. Do we have the wherewithal to do it? Yes, but as software becomes more sophisticated and more complex, it takes more people with greater experience to do it. And that comes back to my earlier point, that digital products are becoming more expensive to, to make than before. So there could be problems with the pipeline of these sorts of, of companies. Hmm. So um, my next question is around the talent pipeline. You talked a bit uh, the, uh, earlier about how that's become a real potential challenge to the growth of the sector, access to talent. Uh, we do see wages rising very strongly. I think you indicated that earlier as well. But uh, in work I've done with Kath Kathy Simpson, it's not uncommon for uh, um, uh, employees to get uh, scooped away for twenty, thirty, forty thousand $40,000 raises. Uh, maybe even higher, so in some cases even doubling a, a person's salary mm -hmm. to move to work for a Google or a, a, a one of these big tech players. So I guess the question for you is, are you seeing that? And I think your answer is going to be yes. But if, if that is an issue, how do we solve it? How do we, I, I can't believe that we're going to let uh, a bottleneck of talent um, uh, you know, be be the barrier to the growth of the sector. Let's 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 open up the doors, bring in immigrants. You know, double enrollment at the, in our universities. Like, what 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 are, what are your thoughts? Okay, everybody is screaming. I can't find the people I need, and I hear it. It's true. But last year, 
I'm trying to, last year on a weighted average, Atlantic Canadian companies increased their, fund, their, their staffing by about 31%. So somebody somewhere is finding people to hire. It's the best year we've seen in a long, long time for Atlantic Canadian startups. Um, Andrew Rao Chapman, at the, uh, the, the Dean of the Faculty of Computer Science at Dow, we were discussing this recently, and he said, look, we've got an advantage. It's hard to get into Australia. It's hard to get into to Britain these days because of, of, of Brexit and changing immigration policies there. It's easier to get into the U.S. now, but, you know, everybody worries about what's going to happen in two years politically. Um, Canada is still open to the world. Canada is advertising that it wants, you know, the signals are there that we want to be adding a million dollars, a million people a year before too long. It's 400,000 now. We have an advantage to hire the best and the brightest from around the world and offer them a great lifestyle. And in this sector, competitive co compensation. Uh, you want, you'll learn more going to Austin, Texas or, or um, uh, California, but we can offer an extremely nice lifestyle. Then you've got um, the computer science faculties. Um, you know, um, Andrew at, at Dell told me that they're looking to, to double capacity. They're the largest in the region. Um, I was um, I was talking to recently with Paul Maserol from UNB. They're looking at doubling computer science undergraduate and tripling computer science graduate students. Um, you've had new programs introduced at at MUN in the last year. So computer science is expanding. I believe guidance counselors at the, the secondary school level have finally cottoned on to the idea that there's opportunity in this field and they're sort of guiding students into it. Uh, com community colleges are also improving their, uh, their, their intake. So there is the, the you know, the, the organic supply of, of students or of uh, people as well. It will be tight. It will be tough. Um, as you just said, I can't believe we're going to basically toss out the baby with the bathwater. I don't see that happening. It's just going to be an ongoing challenge. And I mean, I, I, look, Peter, I'd literally go, I'd go to, yeah, I'd go to Ukraine or maybe Russia. I don't know about Russia. That's a tricky one. But and I'd literally say, come, come, let's go. Look, there's all these companies, all this. I'd go to Boston like I, and say the same thing. Yeah. Um, San Francisco, um, yeah. you know, what, what, what happens in America if there's a second Trump presidency or if, you know, son of Trump gets in in two years? Um, <laughs> Lots of uncertainty there. Yeah. Peter, I wanted not, to ask you. This is not a bad place to be. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier remote work and on one hand, you know, I can't complain if somebody's working for Google making 150,000 and sitting in St. John or sitting in Sussex. But if it means less talent for our local startups, our local firms, 
then it is a concern to me. So uh, do you think, based on your research and all the interviews you've done, do you think this remote work is going to be a challenge for New Brunswick and Atlantic Canadian startups? Um, are they going to be able to recruit the staff they need or, or is the best and brightest talent being cream skimmed off you know, by these global firms that, are, that are, can hire people anywhere? I think it's a net positive, David, and I don't think we will ever see the data on, you know, how many Atlantic Canadian companies employ people based in other parts of the world versus how many people live in Atlantic Canada who work for for people elsewhere. Um, but Overall, I think it's a net positive for several reasons. One is people who are working here uh, pay taxes here. Um, they're supporting everything. I mean, I've, I know of two different CFOs, one in Halifax and one in Yarmouth, who worked, no, I'm sorry, not CFOs, CTOs, chief technology officers, who worked for American companies that were bought. So though, that means that they would have personal wealth while they continue to work in Atlantic Canada. And there are a lot of those people we just can't get the numbers on them. Um, the other thing is we are, a, the, the whole remote work craze is allowing people with capabilities from around the world to live here um, I was talking to a guy who moved, he's originally from Brazil, but he moved down from Ottawa. I met him the other day and he said, how can I get involved? How can I help out? Uh, you're finding all kinds of capabilities, international connections. Uh, it's no longer just, you know, a bunch of us hanging out at Volta or at Planet Hatch or what, whatever. There's a far more international dimension and you're getting people with far more capabilities who can help training, help mentoring, etc. And the other thing is, you know, there are a lot of developers in India. There are a lot of developers in Mexico. There are a lot of developers elsewhere. And if the young Atlantic Canadian company that would like to hire somebody in, in Halifax but can't, they could use that use that option. So you're suggesting that you think it's a net positive if you, if you positive. weigh the, yeah. the pros and the cons, it's a yeah. net positive. Okay. Even though, you know, the guy next door who's just started a startup is competing against Google for that guy coming out of UNB. Yeah. Peter, there's not a single person in all of Atlantic Canada that interacts with uh, these entrepreneurs uh, as you do um thank I you what about, ask, our reporter, what about our reporter avery well that's a good point that's a good point you are you are nurturing and incubating talent right there in in your shop but i guess the point i'm trying to make is i wanted to ask you based on all of this knowledge of all these firms and all these individual entrepreneurs where are the most interesting entrepreneurs coming from these days do they have an idea in university and come right out of university and start a company or are they in an industry like finance or something to do with oceans and they get a great idea and they start a company are they immigrants coming here how about female founders where are the most interesting entrepreneurs coming from these days out of those seven it's seven all seven? of the above david 
you cannot, like, you know, it amazes me just the range of people. Let me give you a few examples. Um, there's a guy called Kevin Sullivan. He raised $6 million for a biotech in, in uh, I think it's Oakville, Ontario. Then he moved here 10 years ago, uh, worked with one startup. Then he set up Appley Technologies, which is now publicly listed. Uh, he moved on from Apple. He was looking something to do. He linked up with a, a researcher at Dalhousie called John Frampton. And Frampton is a specialist in uh, mass production of natural materials, such as uh, spider webs. So, so, you know, spider silk. So they are now working on in a company on the industrial production uh, of spider silk or something like it. Uh, the applications would include bulletproof vests because spider webs, you know, when a fly goes into a spider web, it's flexible, but it doesn't break. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, who'd have, who'd have predicted that? I was talking to one AI professional and she and her wife, uh, she's originally from Iran. She and her wife toured the world um, she ended up in Canada and then she toured all of Canada looking for the best place. She thought that, um, that Canada was a, a society that respected LGBTQ plus rights. She liked Nova Scotia and now she set up her AI company here in Halifax. Um, you've got, um, you know, a guy like John Hamlin. Uh, who attended Woodstock, not the not the second Woodstock, the one in 69. Don't ask him what it was like because he can't remember it. Um, but he, um, you know, he's doing startups and working with startups in the, the silver economy. It's just such a grab bag. It's, uh, it's really phenomenal to, to witness. So there's no commonality there. What's what's the commonality? So. They all they all but, like being here. Like what's the commonality? What all of the universities are now focusing on is getting researchers, getting that researchers to understand the um, the market based application for their research in the hopes that it results in startups. Something pioneered by Steve Blank in in the U.S. and uh, and ICOR. Uh, so you've got iSTEM at UNB, you've got um, Lab to Market at Dalhousie and MUN, and, and it's expanding. Um, I think the success will probably rely on the partnerships between business development people and the scientists. Uh, but it's, um, it's, it's really a focus of, of the community right now. So the next question is, um, we know that most of the time, the companies that are very successful get to a size and then they sell out. Uh, normally to a firm, you know, based somewhere else in the world. We saw that with, with Verifin and NASDAQ. We've seen that with uh, most of them. Um, so I guess two questions for you. One, is that a good or a bad thing? And is do you see any potential in the future for companies to actually you know, maybe go public or or or, initi or uh, you know IPO, but actually maintain the head office here in Atlantic Canada? Because there is a little bit of a concern that now all these firms are 
the decisions are being made outside of the region. So what are your thoughts? Okay. First of all, it is overwhelmingly a good thing. We did a study about five years ago of what happened to the, um, to the, the operations of companies after exits. Here's what we found. Now, this would be 2016, I believe, uh, more than $2 billion in investment into the Atlantic Canadian economy through the, these exits. The, I think at the time we found there were about 1,800 people working for exited companies in Atlantic Canada. That would probably have doubled. I mean, you've got 600 people working in St. John's for Verifin. 600. Um, then you've got, you know, IBM through uh, Q1 Labs. You've got um, um, the Ocean Nutrition Canada grouping. Um, so you've got huge employment. You look at a company like Cvent, which bought one lobby in Fredericton for, for a fire sale price, brought along five employees. They now employ more than 100 Atlantic Canadians. That's an extreme example, but but it's there. Um, so in terms of direct investment, it, it's a bonus in terms, just on the terms of direct investment, how much, you know, in total does Atlantic Canada pay to Opportunities New Brunswick, to Nova Scotia Business Inc., to go around the world looking for direct investment opportunities? We've got our best entrepreneurs going out and doing it all the time. And they're really effective at it, and it has huge economic benefits. Um, then you've got uh, you've got uh, philanthropy. Volta exists. I mean, somebody would have involved. Volta was going to happen, but the fact is, it did ha happen because Jevin McDonald decided it would, and he had the means to do it because uh, Go Instant had exited. Uh, there are other examples of philanthropy that are out there. Um, then you've just got an infusion of talent. You've got uh, links to other places. Uh, you've got the encouragement for other entrepreneurs to come along. And you've got repeat entrepreneurs, whether it's Gavin Uma in Cape, uh, Cape Privacy, which raised uh, 25 million last year. Um, uh, who else? Well, I mentioned Kevin Sullivan. Um, so yeah, it's 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 all good. You mentioned companies staying around uh, for the next year or so, two years. Who knows? the The door has closed on IPOs. Um, the you know, what's happened with NASDAQ, it, nobody wants to guess at a valuation of a, a, of a, of a tech company right now. Um, not only that, but you can look at uh, the lawsuits filed against uh, Metamaterials and against Sona Nanotech. Who needs that grief? Um, I think it could happen. I what I think will be interesting would be private equity investors and private equity is a different asset class than VC. So, you know, companies with huge amounts of money buying in and um, 
and taking substantial stakes. And this has happened before. It happened with Virafin the first time they did a big deal. I've heard of it happening with another big company recently. Um, and I would think, you know, entrepreneurs like George Palacaris at Metamaterials, they want to build a world-beating company here in Atlantic Canada. Uh, I think George has the wherewithal to do it. Uh, he's going to have to get his revenues up. Uh, but, you know, that's a company now that has about $500 million in market capitalization, $500 million Canadian. It's, it's not the $2 billion that it was, but $500 million is still a substantial uh, size for a company. So the the hour here, Peter, has has flown by. I mean, we've had an amazing conversation and you've shared so many stories. But before we end today, I did want to ask you to revisit the book you wrote back in 2009 called Backwater, colon, Nova Scotia's Economic Decline. And I would say I read that book. It's in my bookshelf. Um, I've never seen it before. Well, next time I see you, you're going to sign it for yeah. me. But it was, I would say it was a rather tough assessment of why the province and region had, had been lagging the rest of the country on most economic and social indicators. Um, good writing. You obviously are uh, have a journalistic background. You're a good writer. But Thank I wanted you. to ask you, if you're writing Backwater 2.0 today, what would change? Have there been any positive changes in the 13 years since? Uh, are you more or less optimistic these days? So if you were rewriting that book today, uh, what would be different? There would be two big things that would be different on the positive side. The first thing is I, did, I devoted a chapter to immigration and what a colossal failure it was and uh, without any hope of it recovering. You know, I, I, I was proved, joyfully, I've been proved wrong in that. Um, immigration right now is a huge Atlantic Canadian success story. Long may it continue. There was a paragraph, I think, in there. The, the, the book I wrote in 2009 saying one thing that I am encouraged about is there are some really cool little startups in Atlantic Canada or in Nova Scotia, and I hope they continue to grow. I ended up jumping on that bandwagon big time. And... Um, yeah, if you're looking at entrepreneurship now, you're looking at a very different beast than you were in 2009. And, and that's a good, good thing. I had no idea there'd be something called COVID at that time, which has really shot provincial fiscal policy to hell. Not so much where you are, but certainly where I am. And governments have to, get, have to rein in, have to, have to get that in control. That was the, the big message uh, of backwater was we've got to get, do something about A, growth and B, fis, you know, the fiscal situation. The fiscal situation for virtually all provinces, with the exception of, of, of Newfoundland and Labrador, I guess, improved till two years ago. And now we've, it, it's tough again. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope with all this uh, windfall oil and gas revenue, Newfoundland and Labrador should be in a little better position. They should be, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, they made $100 million, I calculated, off the uh, off the Verifin exit. Um, <laughs> a few more of those, you'd get, into, you'd get back yeah. into fiscal balance, yeah. Yeah. So, Peter, so just that last question, though, are you more or less optimistic today 
I would have to be more optimistic. So let me say, I think Canada, you know, I agree with Bill Morneau. I think that our economic problems now are more pronounced than they were seven years ago. The economic story of my lifetime is, now I'm getting into politics by saying that, but I don't think the federal government realizes just how dire the fiscal situation is. And it reminds me of the situation that we were in when I sort of came of age in 1980. Yeah, there's more opportunities for growth than there were. There are young people. I think school-age kids are, are, you know, there's schools are growing. So, yeah, I think overall I'd be more optimistic than I was 11 years ago. I spend my life surrounded by optimistic founders. <laughs> so it's hard not to have that rub off on you. Yeah. Peter, thanks so much for Thank joining us so today. Much. On the uh, it's a shame Don couldn't join us. I've really enjoyed this, David. I am a an avid reader of uh, It's the Economy, Stupid, and keep on putting those up, out. <laughs> thanks so much. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.